0: Good morning. morning. Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. We're disciples of Jesus that build generational, transformational disciples of Jesus. Of course, I'm Pastor Aaron. I'm glad to have you with us today as we complete our series on following Jesus, where we've been this entire summer going through the four Gospels and following the life and the teachings of Jesus because followers of Jesus should know what Jesus did and taught. And I hope that it has been a good series for you as you've maybe you've discovered a few things about what Jesus actually did. I think for me, personally, I was impressed over this, this series on how righteous Jesus is. Like He is so perfect. And I knew that before, but I got a little complacent in kind of the buddy Jesus uh, mentality as a Christian, and it's true that Jesus is close to me and all those things. But then in this series, as I went through and I got to see as Jesus taught and as he, as he, uh, as he cared for people and the miracles and all of the things that he did uh, about how, uh, how amazingly right Jesus is in everything that he did, everything that he taught. He didn't uh, pander to people. He didn't change his message or his attitudes or anything based upon how to please others. He pleased God. And what he did is he had this incredibly right life that he called me to. And us, and that was one of the things that really impressed me. I was talking with my wife about that. I said, As "We went through this. What was something that you picked up?" And she had mentioned that it was the holiness of Jesus, about how different He was. And yes, He was human, and uh, but how He is God in flesh. <laughs> and once again, just to be reminded of the fact that we're not following some spaghetti monster or some uh, you know rumor that came out of a cave somewhere we're following a God that came to earth. God came to earth. And it was something that really impressed upon her. Again, that this is not a game. This was not something that was uh, uh, just for entertainment or whatever. But but Jesus is different. He is holy. And I hope that you had something as we went through this series that God also spoke to you as Jesus uh, reveals himself through the word. Um, And If you hadn't, let me invite you to, again, go through the Gospels and read them and realize that this is a Jesus that we are following because disciples follow the Lord. Now, for those in this section, I owe you an apology. This television died this morning because things die in this world. Now, the good news for you all uh, in that is that Jesus came to make all things new, and uh, eventually, I believe that this TV will shine again, but for this morning, you're going to have to turn your heads to see that. Our memory verse for the series uh, is Matthew 16, 24. By now, I really hope that it's stuck. It's just the 14th weekend, but if not, if you're slow, don't worry. You have today. So here we go. Uh, just say it along with me. Three, two, one. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. Again, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, Matthew 16, 24. Last time, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, Matthew 16:24. Now, here's some good news for you. Last week, we got to talk about the fact that Jesus died, right? And and oftentimes, following Jesus, we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross. We have to deny ourselves. That's part of of following Jesus. And the crazy thing about that is when we die to ourselves, right, all of our small ways of living, living for this tiny life, we find real living, right? But we have to deny ourselves. We have to go to that death first, right? I I choose, I'm going to follow Christ. But it's not just I have to deny myself to take up my cross, but there's also that last piece that we have to follow him. And that means following him into what we get to celebrate today, which is a whole new life. Jesus doesn't call us to death. He calls us to real living, a real life, an eternal life. And we're going to talk about historically how that happened, right? And so we ended last week, Jesus died. Now let's go to our calendar to see, make sure that we understand the the line of events that take place in this. And so just a, a quick refresher of how time works, right? Every day, there's a day and a night, right? And that just kind of a series since the beginning, day, night, day, night, day, night, day, night, right? And then when you have a day and a night and you put them together, that's 24 hours, and that's what is we as humans call a day. And you're like, well, okay, Aaron, that makes sense, but that's not how we track our days. See, we don't say when the sun rises, that's daytime, right? That's when a new day begins. We have a meridian-based calendar which says, all right, our days begin at the, uh, from midnight to midnight. Right. That's So at midnight, when it's the darkest time, is when we have the next day begin. Well, the Jewish people, they had it different. They said when the sun goes down, that's when their days begin. And the reason that I bring this up is because I didn't understand this for a long time. And as I read the passage of what happens today, what we're going to be covering today, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Because you see here, Where the the Jewish people, they had their days based upon just days of the week. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, Sabbath, seventh day, right? That's how we do. We have, we name our days after crazy like Roman gods and stuff like that. We have like Thursday and Friday, whatever, right? But the difference between those two is about six hours on each end, right? You have about a six hours crazy window when when, uh, their day would change and ours hasn't changed yet. And that makes it a little different when you read the Gospels and we try to put these things together in our head. Now that I've showed you, it, you're welcome. It's going to make a whole lot more sense now. So let's look at the things that happened on this particular time. We had the first things, we had the Last Supper. That happened on Thursday night, right, which is the beginning of the sixth day. That's the day of preparation, the day before Sabbath, okay? On that day, there was the Last Supper. Jesus was betrayed, right? And then we find that the next day, which we call Friday, it would have been the same day in the Jewish mind that Jesus was crucified. And he died. Now, he was crucified at 9. He died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. right? So he's on the cross that day. Later on that day, before sundown, which doesn't matter to us, but it mattered deeply to the Jewish people, be, that Jesus was entombed. And I say entombed, not buried, because we bury people six feet under the ground. Jesus was stuck into a cave, and they rolled a big old stone in front of it. Right? And he was entombed, that's where they put the dead people. And that happened, it had to happen before sundown on Friday. All right? So he's put in the tomb on that day, and we look at that and say that's the first day. Jesus was in the tomb before sundown. He gets put in the tomb, of course, Joseph, Arimathea, and Nicodemus take him, put him in Joseph's tomb, and that's where he's at. The second day then begins. What happens on that? On Saturday, it was the Sabbath, which means that after sun went down, all of the good Jews went home. That's where they needed to be. And so we know that Mary and uh, some other of the disciples got to see where Jesus was in tomb, but then Sabbath hit. They had to go back to their houses. This was the right thing to do. Right, Because it's Sabbath. They had to take a day and a day of rest. Except for some people, some of the Jews didn't go rest right away. And, and that were the high priests, the, the chief priests. What do they do on the Sabbath? They go back to that pagan overlord of theirs and say, we heard this Jesus going to raise on the third day. So you need to put some guards on the outside and seal the tomb. So instead of being good Jews, they go and they start working on the Sabbath. Which ironically enough, was the very thing they tried to kill Jesus for doing. Also, the disciples would not have known about the guards because they were home when the guards were sent, which makes a lot more sense to me when I read later on when the women were going to the tomb and they were worried about one thing, and that's how they're going to move the rock, not how they're going to move the guards away. They didn't know about them. The guards get set up on the seventh day, on, on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. And the disciples rest and mourn. And then, after that, we have the third day. Now, when I was an early Christian, I thought Jesus was in the tomb for three days. That's 72 hours. But we find on the third day, Jesus rose again. But that's not the three full days. It's not 72 hours. It's on the third day. That would be on the first day of the week, which began at sundown on Saturday. And interestingly enough, if you put the math together, depending on the time of year, because the sun sets at different times... Jesus may have been in the tomb for 40 hours, which is cool, I think. So you have at the resurrection happens sometime between sundown, around six o'clock or so p.m., and sometime before dawn on the first day of the week, which means that he actually rose sometime probably on Saturday morning, which if you're reading the scriptures and I was early on, messed with my head. But that's okay, because Jesus was doing some really good things. He was discovered to be alive right there at the beginning of Sunday morning. This is the story from the firsthand people who were there, the eyewitnesses of how this day, how it, how it came up, up together. And the first thing we find in the morning where there were some women, and they go to the tomb, right? And, and we find that in this, there was probably a little group of women, right? There was not all of them together, right? But there was... Uh, uh, Wait a second here. That's the wrong slide. What happened to my things? I practiced this like five times. Okay, so we go back through. (laughs) I don't know. The computer's being weird today. All right, so we have them. They go to the tomb on the first day, and uh, the the women get together, and they they say, we're going to meet together at the tomb at this time, and there was probably three different groups of women before dawn, and they're going to go show up there. And how do we know it's three different groups of women? Because when you read the f- four different Gospels accounts to this, there are some different stories or things that you can tell, different details, and it had to be different groups of women that were there. And the very first gal that shows up would have been Mary Magdalene. If we read about her in John 20, chapter 1, and, and since I don't have that, I'm just going to open up my Bible, and I'm going to read it to you, because it's, it's so fantastic. And I apologize. I practiced it on friday and it was all working okay so john chapter 20 verse 1 oh praise god no that's not it that's not it yeah they go to it i had it so it says before dawn i'm going to read it to you because this is important this is really important Early on the first day of the week, what day was that? That's after Saturday night, right, when the sun goes down. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. This is the part that broke my brain before. How could it still be dark before sunrise, right? So Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Which means that before she showed up, while the sun hadn't even come up yet, something miraculous took place. And Mary shows up, and all she sees is an is a... As an empty tomb with the stone rolled away. Now, she didn't know about the guards. She didn't know about anything like that. She just knew that she walked in, and it looked like a grave robber. It looked like somebody came and took the Lord. Now, she goes from that, and the next thing it says that she did is that she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's John, and, and then said, they have taken the Lord of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. She was... Pit- Terrified. She was brokenhearted. She thought somebody stole Jesus. And so she's that that was her experience. Hey, thank you. <laughs> it's a crack team back there, by the way. Okay, so they have this. She shows up. That's that's it. There is no, no body and she's broken. Now, what happened before that? How did the body disappear? Well, we find out is that late at night, right at some point, there was a, a massive earthquake and an angel of God showed up and rolled the stone away revealing that there was no one inside and those guards were terrified as any one of us would be and they ran back to the chief priest thunk, 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 because their job was to guard the tomb to make sure nobody came from the outside to get somebody from the inside you know there that's what they were supposed to do and all of a sudden Uh, the army of God showed up, and an angel showed up, and they were like, we are outmatched, and they run away. And normally then, they would be punished most severely, right? They could be imprisoned, they could be put to death, it was a bad thing. And so the chief priests, instead of killing them, says, pays them a lot of money, and say, we'll take care of this when it gets, when the word gets back to your Roman overlords, what happened. And they said, this is what we want you to say. We want you to say that the disciples came and stole the body from you. And to this day, that lie is continued to be perpetuated. But I want you to think for a second how ridiculous that would be. For starters, it was women who came. Second off, the other disciples weren't even looking for Jesus to be healed. Third thing, they were like fishermen and tax collectors, not soldiers, and they're gonna steal a body from an armed Roman guard who knew that we were expecting somebody to come for them. It makes no sense. And the fact that those soldiers were not disciplined, if Jesus really was stolen by the disciples, and then they would pay them money and not discipline them, makes no sense. Well, anyway, this angel shows up, opens the tomb. Everybody, Jesus isn't in there. Mary finds it. She's terrified. She goes, what am I going to do? Well, then there were some other women that show up after that. Once Mary leaves, other women, it says, they came early in the morning while the sun just came up. So it sounds like these women said, let's get together uh, early in the morning and we're gonna anoint the body. We're gonna put spices and stuff on the body and they get there. Mary got there first, she's gone. Now the second group is in there. And we find them, they come into this area and they, uh, they see the garden, they see the tomb and on top of the stone is an angel. And and the same angel that rolled away the stone. Now, why Mary Magdalene wasn't able to see that angel, we don't know. Maybe he was around back. I have no idea, right? But this time, he was sitting on top of the stone when these other women showed up. And they're terrified. And he says to them, don't be alarmed. And you're going to hear that a lot in here because apparently it was a very alarming day. But the angels keep saying, don't be alarmed. He says, this Jesus that you were looking for, right? I know you're looking for Jesus, but he's not here. He has risen. Just as he said, right? And then he says to them, come and see the place where he lay. And so that's exactly what they did. They went inside and they were overjoyed and they were terrified. They went inside the tomb and they found two other angels sitting there and said the same thing. And then they said, you need to go tell the disciples, right, that he is risen and go into Galilee. And this is their instruction over and over again. Go to Galilee. This is where you're going to see the Lord. And he says, see, now I told you. Now you, now you got your job. Go. And so these women they who came into the tomb, they saw it was empty. They saw the angels. They're alarmed. They're a little worried and also really happy. And so they head back to the disciples and something amazing happens in this. Is, uh, uh, that's the other one. Boy, oh boy. I am so embarrassed by this. Okay. That's this third group of women. Anyway, Jesus shows up and meets them. <laughs> Jesus shows up and he meets these disciples and uh, they are these these women on the road and he shows himself to them as they're heading back to see the disciples. He, he shows himself to the women and they worship him and they, they touch they worship his feet. And then they're like, oh, and he says, now get on back and tell the disciples that I'm here. Then the third group, which you saw up there, they came into the tomb. Right. And uh, and they they saw that it was. Uh, no one was there. They go inside. They see another angel, a different one that was there, maybe the one from on the outside, and he tells them the same thing. He says, I know you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. Go back and tell the disciples what you see here. Now, the reason that's all this important is um, because these women then go back to tell the disciples, and it's not just one group of women. First, there's Mary who shows up and says, I didn't see an angel, doesn't know Jesus is alive. She tells Peter and all the disciples, hey, there's a problem. Right? There's a big problem. Jesus is missing. And I don't know where they took him. Then the second group shows up and says, hey, good news. Jesus is alive. There was an angel at the tomb, two inside of it. And then we met Jesus on the way back. And he says to go meet him in, in Galilee. And then a third group of women who went and saw another angel on the inside who told them something similar, although they didn't see the Lord. They came back and were like, hey, guess what? The tomb's empty, but it's okay because an angel told us Jesus is alive. Now, when the disciples hear this, they didn't believe the women because it would have sounded insane. Right? I mean, that's just crazy. They're woken up early in the morning. First, the body's gone. We saw Jesus. There's an angel. They're like, y'all crazy. And they didn't believe. And this is one of the things that when I was studying the faith spoke to me because if this was a book written by people to invent a new religion, this is a detail they would not have put in there. First thing is they wouldn't have had Jesus show up to women first because they were considered not a trustworthy resource, and plus it just would lower value in in their their testimony. The second thing is if they were going to be this... uh, the paragons of this new church they were truly trying to get everybody to think they were so great the last detail they would put in there is say the women saw and believed first and then we didn't now this is what happened this was kind of embarrassing but it's what happened and it makes sense because i guarantee if any one of us were in those rooms we wouldn't believe either and by the way it wasn't just the men who didn't believe mary magdalene didn't believe either she heard the report of these other gals but she had seen the empty tune herself and she's like i don't see any angels." And so the next thing is Peter, Mary, and John, they, they all go to investigate. In fact, it says that, that Peter and John have a foot race, and John wins. But he's a chicken and doesn't go inside the tomb. He just sees it's empty. And Peter finally gets there. He goes inside the tomb, right? And uh, he sees that uh, there's the, the grave cloths are there. there, are there there's no body. And then John goes in and he recognizes that there was the face cloth over where Jesus' face was. It was actually folded nicely, which a grave robber wouldn't do, right? And there may be some symbolism in there that Jesus is coming back. But there was this, uh, they saw that. John says he believed right away. As soon as he saw that, he's like, Jesus is alive. Peter, mm, verdict's still out, right? They go back to tell the other disciples, leaving Mary there. Mary is outside the tomb weeping. Because she can't make sense of it, she still didn't see Jesus, and she's weeping there at the tomb. And all of a sudden, she looks up. She put, peeks her head inside the tomb. She didn't want to go in. She peeks her head inside the tomb, and she sees an angel. And the angel is wearing that the white, you know, shining robes and garments and all that kind of stuff. And he's there, and he's looking uh, at her, and he says, "Why, are, why are you weeping?" And she says, uh, "Well." Y- they took in my, the, my body and my Lord, right? And, and I don't know, where, where did you put him? I don't know where, that, where he is. And she, even still, even seeing an angel, could not fathom that Jesus could actually been raised from the dead. The fact that James and, or John and Peter were in the tomb seconds before that and didn't talk to anybody and then left didn't, I mean, cross her mind that maybe now there's an angel in there where these guys just left, right? He appeared. Even still, with an angel before her, she's like, where did they take the body? She was that broken heart. She was, to understand, we celebrate a risen Lord every single week, so it's hard for us to put ourselves in the mind frame. They had never seen or had an idea that the Messiah actually could raise himself from the dead. And even Mary, sitting there talking to an angel, saying, you know, why are you weeping? And even then, she couldn't believe that he actually would raise from the dead. Well, So she's not believing, and uh, it's not just Thomas that had doubt. She had reasonable doubt, and she's crying there. She's talking to this angel, and if that was enough that she wouldn't believe then, the next thing that happens is that she turns around, and then she sees Jesus standing there, and she didn't realize it was him, and he's right there before, and she thinks he's a gardener, and she says to him, "Lord," he said, if you've taken the body my Lord, just tell me where it is, and I'll go retrieve it. Like, I won't tell anybody if you did this. Just tell me, because she cared for, for Christ that much. And then Jesus calls her by name and says, Mary. And she heard the voice of her master, her Messiah, and she recognized it. And she turned to him and, and recognized who it was. And she fell down in worship and said, teacher, you're here. And Jesus says, yes, I am. But don't get too close to me because I've got some work to do. But I need you to go back and tell the disciples. And so she heads on back and she tells the disciples. And Mary Magdalene then shows up. Now, Rick, imagine you're the rest of the, the other guys that are there. They're in that room. The morning is filled with all these crazy women in the house celebrating the fact that, that they think that Jesus is alive. You have Peter and John gone, now finally coming back. John saying, I, I guarantee he's alive. And Peter's like, I don't know, still an empty tomb. Let's not rush to any rash judgment. And now finally Mary shows back up and says, I saw the Lord. Eyewitness, I was there. And so this house was filled with excitement and with confusion. If you read the four Gospels, it's, it reads very much that way, with that same kind of chaotic energy of something that happened, right? that there was, it, this was unexpected and unprecedented. And the disciples are still trying to make sense of what on earth is happening. Well, that same day, there were two other disciples who were not any of the, the 11 that were left, of course, Judas had hanged himself by this point, but they were walking outside of the city, and Jesus meets with them at some point in the day, and they are on the road to Emmaus. And uh, where that road is, uh, it says two of them were going to a village Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. So if you look on a map, that's where Emmaus is, and you kind of go down this hill, right, and... and um, kind of a mountainside, and you're going to Emmaus, and it's a decent journey, and these two disciples were walking, and we know that one of them was named Cleo- uh, Cleopas, and he was uh, Jesus's uncle, right? It says uh, Jesus's crucifixion that Mary, the sister of Jesus's uh, mom, who was the wife of Cleopas, was there, and that's uh, in, in John chapter 19. So this is that guy. Cleopas was there, so that's Jesus's uncle, one of the disciples, the other one, we don't know who it is. And Jesus shows up. Now, this is a guy who would know Jesus. It was his uncle. We're walking on the road, and they were downcast and hurting. And they were like, what on earth happened? Because, of course, they're seven miles away from the city. And they don't know what happened that morning. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, guys, what, what are you guys talking about? Why are you so sad? And they're like, are you the only human being that's in anywhere around here that has no idea what happened? He says, well, tell me. He says, Jesus, our Messiah came and our leaders executed him. And then it says from that point, Jesus began teaching them from the point of Moses on how the Messiah in Scripture was supposed to come and suffer, but then he would also raise again. Well, they finally get to Emmaus, right? And then Jesus pretends he's going to keep, he's got some more journeying to do. And they're like, no, 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 stay, stay. This is a good conversation. Please have dinner with us. Jesus says, all right, I'll have dinner with you. And they go into their house and they sit down. And he breaks bread for them, and all of a sudden, they're like, oh, you're Jesus. He's like, yep, and then he disappears, which is awesome. <laughs> so cool. And they were like, weren't our hearts like, burning within us when he was telling us about how all these things, like he brought restored hope back to them. Well, all of a sudden, these guys are now in Emmaus. They go on a seven-mile jur- jog all the way back to Jerusalem because they want to tell the apostles, we saw Jesus. He's alive. And so they show up, and they are now in The room with the disciples and they're telling him everything they thought. And then finally, Jesus appears to 10 of the 11 disciples in Jerusalem. Thomas was out uh, doing something. I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was fed up with all of the crazy people saying, we've seen dead people. I don't know. But he was gone. But the other 10 were there. We know that there was the two disciples from Emmaus actually showed up and they were talking in this and that said that the door was locked because of fear of the Jews. Of course, the disciples were worried about this. The Jews had just executed Jesus, and now they're going to be blamed and framed for stealing his body. And they still hadn't seen the Lord. And so they're behind this door, and they're hearing all these stories, figuring out what's happening. And it says, And on the evening of the first day of the week, right, we're getting close to sundown. The disciples were together uh, when the doors were locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The doors were locked which is an interesting thing here. First thing we want to know, it was the evening. And I want to point this out because they had to wait a while. In the morning, you have the resurrection. Then Jesus appears to the women. Then he appears to Mary Magdalene. Then he appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which seems awfully random. And then finally, finally, before that first day ends, at the very end of the day, he finally shows himself to the disciples. Before that, they had to trust the, the witness of others. And I think it's important that that happened to them because ever since then for 2,000 years, all the rest of us have had to to trust their witness. They know what it felt like. They didn't get to see Jesus till the last part of the day, but Jesus showed up. And he he materializes before them, which shows that his new body is really cool. It can do normal body things like eat fish because they're like, you're a ghost. He's like, I'm not a ghost. And so he's, here, give me some fish. And they gave him some fish. He says, see, can a ghost eat? And he's like, feel my wounds and stuff. I'm here. But he also did cool things like he can appear and disappear and travel and, and, do, and you know, go through locked doors. Pretty awesome. And so we find that Jesus showed up. And then he leaves. And the disciples have the same joy as the women and all those who saw him. They knew for a fact that God had raised from the dead. All but one of them. And that was Thomas. Thomas comes in now, after you know he left, and the other disciples are thinking, This is crazy, right? He comes back and everyone's like, We saw Jesus. And he's like, Y'all, crazy. Like he would have thought they had totally lost their mind. He's like, I will not believe it until I see it with my own eyes. Until I can touch his wounds with my own hands. I'm not going to believe it. And you can imagine that Thomas is probably a little upset the fact that Jesus would show himself to everybody first but him. But Thomas missed it. Well. That's what he says, and the other disciples are like, no, he's alive. And then one week later, one week, he meets with Thomas. And he shows up, same thing, they're all in the room, doors locked, all that stuff. And he shows up, and and he says, here I am, peace be with you, because I imagine it startles them, because the doors are locked, and all of a sudden, Jesus is there. And they're like, hey, peace. And he goes to Thomas, and he says, here, touch my wounds, right, right? Know that it's me. And Thomas immediately says, my Lord and my God, which was the strongest confession of faith that we've seen yet. He worships Jesus directly. He doesn't just say, oh, you're, you're my teacher who raised again, but you are God. And from that point on, the Apostle Thomas becomes one of the strongest evangelists in, in the faith. He does amazing things. And I think it's important, too, that he recognized exactly who Jesus was. Remember when we started the series 14 weeks ago? It was a long time the whole reason why we would even study this is two things. Well, first thing is that Jesus is God. And the second reason we care about the Gospels is that Jesus is our Savior. He is Messiah. And Thomas recognizes both right there, which is the foundation of our faith. After this, he doesn't just meet with Simon, but then he meets with Peter. All right? Peter believed. Peter saw the risen Savior. Peter knew that Jesus had, had done all these things. But Peter also remembered that he betrayed Jesus. And I'm sure felt like a second-class disciple. I don't know if you ever felt that way, but he absolutely, I'm sure, did. Well, Jesus told the disciples to go and meet him in in Galilee, so that's what they was going to do. And so the disciples eventually get up to Galilee. Now, this is at least a week after the resurrection, maybe two weeks, a little bit further, right? And the disciples go up to Galilee. And they're out there, and what we find is, uh, where's Galilee? Of course, that's where the northern portion, that kind of that area up top. And most likely from the description of the story, I'm sure they were near Capernaum because Peter was going out fishing. And where was his fishing boat? Capernaum, right? That's that's where he was at. That's where he started to follow Jesus the first time when Jesus said, follow me. I think it's interesting. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. Some of the other disciples said, all right. So they want to get in a boat and they're in the boat with Peter and they're out all night, can't catch anything because sometimes that's just the way it is. Then they get the morning time, the sun rises and yeah, let's go in. And there's a guy on the shore and he calls out, Hey, friends, how's the fishing? They're like, Lousy. He's like, Throw your net on the other side of the boat, which happened before with some other time, these guys. And they did, and a miraculous catch of fish. Over 150, almost 160 huge fish. So many they couldn't even get them on the boat. As soon as it happened, John, who was brilliant, says, That's the Lord! And Peter doesn't even wait. He takes out his outer garment, which he had taken off because he's on a boat, right? And he ties it on him, and he jumps in the water, and he swims to shore. And the other disciples are like, well, I guess we can now get the boat in. So they get the boat in as fast as they can. They, they drag the fish up to shore. And they have this. They find Jesus had a fire there and some fish already on the grill. And he says, bring up some more of the fish that you had caught. And they have a breakfast together. And after breakfast, Jesus pulls Peter aside and says, Peter, do you love me? Right, and, and it's agape love. You really love me with everything. And Peter knew that he did. He said, "Yeah, Lord, I, I do love you, but I love you like a friend, <laughs> right?" Soleil, right? And and then Jesus said, "Good enough. Feed my sheep." And then again, Jesus says, "Do you love me? You, you love me with agape love. You love me selflessly, above yourself." And and Peter just couldn't bring himself to say it. He said, "No. He said, Lord, you know that I love you, but I love you like a brother. I, I love you like a brotherly love.'" And Jesus said, "That's it's okay. We'll start with that." You know, take care of my sheep. But he asked a third time. Peter, do you love me like a brother? <laughs> Which made Peter hurt on the inside. Because he's like, yeah, and Jesus finally accepts it, that I, I, I'm a failure. And, and Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you like that. Right? You, you get me. You're right where I'm at. And, and Jesus says, okay, that's enough, Peter. Feed my sheep. But then he goes on to say, but Peter, I want to tell you something. When you were younger, you got to do anything you wanted. You got to wear whatever clothes you wanted to go. You got to go everywhere you wanted t- to go, right? You got to live your life for you. But I'm telling you something, Peter. There's a day coming in your future that I know, just, just like he predicted the, how he was going to betray him. He says, Peter, I know this. There's a day coming where you're not going to go where you want to go, and you're not going to get dressed the way you want to dress. But you're going to be crucified for me. You actually do love me with agape love, Peter. And, and your life is going to prove that. And he said, and, and he restores Peter and says, you know what? You need to now build and, and, and keep these disciples now that you've been restored, as Jesus predicted. You're going to betray me. But when you are restored, strengthen them. It's exactly what he sends the disciples to him to do. Now, Peter looks back to John because Peter's just got told by Jesus he's going to be crucified, which is good news and not good news. Kind of like, mm, kind of bittersweet. And he looks to John. He says, what about him? <laughs> Right? And Jesus says, well, if he's supposed to stay till I come back, what's that to you? Which didn't mean that, Peter, that John wouldn't die. Some people thought it meant, but it just meant that God called Peter to his ministry and said, Peter, you're going to prove that you're more than you think you are, that your faith is stronger than you ever thought. You're restored. And that's what happened. Well, after he uh, restores Peter... Uh, he meets with them, and eventually he, Jesus says, I want you to meet me on this mountain. We don't know where the mountain was. could be Mount Carmel. It could have been uh, Mount Hermon. It could have been just where the Sermon on the Mount was taking place. He takes them to a mountain, and he gives them what we know today as the Great Commission. Right, he gets his disciples there, and he tells them uh, this, uh, this important thing. It says when they showed up, they believed, but some doubted, right? Even still, after all this time and seeing Jesus, some were still having a hard time grasping the concept that Jesus actually was amongst them, but they saw him there. And, and Jesus, uh, he tells them this. He says, came to them and said, Listen, guys, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, right? I am king of everything. So I, have, I can kind of tell you what to do, right? Because I have this, therefore, because I'm in charge of things, go to all nations. And and what I want you to do is make disciples of all the people, of all the different kinds of people. And this is how I want you. I want you to go there. I want you to baptize them, bring them to faith. And I want you to teach these new disciples to obey everything I have commanded you. And be sure of this, that I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this is not just the commission for them. It is also the commission for us. Now, something really cool is that in our lifetime, actually right now, As I speak, the gospel is spoken in every spoken language in the world now. Isn't that phenomenal? It's the first time in 2,000 years of history that that actually has taken place. To all nations, the gospel is there. It is being written right now. In the last few languages, it's being penned. But it's already spoken in every language in all over the world. The disciples, we are keeping this. We are bringing people to faith. And that's what they were called to do. This is why we say we're disciples of Jesus that build generational, transformational disciples of Jesus. is what Jesus called us to do. That's the commission. Well, after Jesus uh, does this, he calls them. For the next 40 days, he appears to lots of other people, not just the, the disciples right, not just to the women, right, he, he appears to his brother, um, James, who wasn't a believer, even when Jesus died on the cross, James still thought that Jesus was maybe a lunatic, right, and thought, well, how could this guy really be the Messiah, but Jesus, after he dies, raises again, and, and reveals himself to his younger brother, James, and James becomes the leader of Jerus- the Jerusalem church, known as James the Just, and uh, was an amazing uh, disciple. He he meets with other family members and followers, and uh, and he spends 40 days meeting with people, revealing himself to them throughout the entire region. So it wasn't just a handful of people who saw Jesus. It was a lot. In fact, he showed up and and revealed himself to a a group of 500 disciples at the same time, which lets us know they weren't having a mass hallucinization, right? They, They saw Jesus, which is why at Pentecost we see so many people in that very same city that just a month earlier had executed Jesus, why in that very same city, we see thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus as their Messiah, including a large number of priests and a large number of people that were in the religious hierarchy. Why? Because the tomb was empty, and Jesus appeared and walked amongst them, and it was well known. Well, after 40 days... Jesus' work, his ministry, which we've been studying all this time, was now done. And so he meets his disciples back in Jerusalem, and he takes them outside of the city to the Mount of Olives. And there he ascends to heaven. And this is the story of how it happened with the guys that were there. Is He led his disciples out there, and it's about a two-thirds of a mile walk, a Sabbath day journey. And if you go to Jerusalem, this is where you will see of that. There's the Temple Mount where that ugly dome of the rock is. But past that, if you go right up the hill where there's that big old spire, there's a couple different ones. We're not sure exactly where Jesus is. That's the Church of the Ascension, and that's the distance. So the disciples hike up there. They're with Jesus, and he tells them, he says, guys, You need to go back to Jerusalem when I'm done here. You need to wait there until you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't tell them what it's going to look like, but he's like, trust me, you'll know. And when that happens, right, then what I want you to do is is, uh, I've I've got a mission for you. And they say first, they say, wait, 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 wait. Are you now going to finally restore the kingdom to Israel? Right, all heaven and earth and on earth through your authority. You came here, you raised from the dead. We, that was really awesome. You've been with us for 40 days. When we're going to get through with this messiahship stuff, when are we finally going to see you finish the job? When are you coming in power? And Jesus says to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. The Father is set by his authority. But then he goes on to say, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. And this was the last commission sending of them, the promise that God is empowering his mission through his people. And, he, and, and then it says, after that, he was taken up into heaven right before their eyes, and like a cloud came around, and he goes up into heaven, and they're standing there like wondering, what is this? And two men appear suddenly beside them wearing gleaming white clothes, which we're pretty sure they're angels, and they say to him, they say to them, uh, why are you guys standing around? Why are you looking up there, waiting? And they go on to say this, this same Jesus has been taken into heaven, will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. In other words, get busy, right? He's coming back. He's given you work to do. Why are you standing here? And so they rush back into Jerusalem and they wait. And then on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up, and the world is changed forever. This is the story of the gospel. Now, what do we gain from this entire series, especially the events that we see today? What are the things that we can carry out with us that actually are, are, are helpful in our lives? The first thing I think you find in there is that Jesus came. Our God is not a, 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 a story. He's not a rumor. He's not a hearsay kind of God who, you know, goes through some sketchy prophet He used to sell old camels. He is a God who shows up in time and in space. He shows up with real people, walks amongst them for 30 years in their lives, and then for three years after that does miraculous things amongst them, teaches them the word, raises the dead, feeds them crazy meals out of nothing, walks on water, Calm storms, casts out demons before many people. He travels the whole region so lots of people can see him. He blesses children. He touches lepers. He is the God amongst his people. He showed up so we would know God is real. He told us what God wants from us. Jesus has come. God is not a joke. He is not a story. He is a real flesh and blood God. He came. This should change you. You don't have to wonder if God is real. You don't have to look into the night sky and wonder, is this some kind of just big fantasy that we're all in? Are we somehow just a giant mistake? The creator himself put on skin so we could know him. God came for you. And he didn't just come. Because God could come as a judge. Because we're all sinners. And we've taken this creation he made and we have hijacked it and we have used it to bludgeon one another for thousands of years. And before we point the fingers at other people, we point the finger at ourselves because I have used this creation to bludgeon other people. And I have used it in opposition to this amazing God. And that's why the second thing I think we come to is that Jesus overcame. He didn't just come into this world. He overcame everything first so we knew we could trust him and finally on the cross. He overcame get this, our sickness. He overcame hunger. He overcame despair. He overcame demons. He overcame nature. He overcame finances. He overcame politics. He overcame skeptics. Jesus has overcome all things. In the gospel, you see that he is more than capable. He is more than enough. But on the cross, at his very weakest moment, when God could not become weaker, even in that greatest point of weakness, in his death, Jesus overcame sin and death itself. He defeated the enemy of heaven's army at the weakest point. And if God can do that at his weakest point, can you imagine what he's capable in his strength? Jesus has overcome. You are not saved because you are good enough, because you're smart enough, because you're lucky enough. You can be saved because God himself has come to this world and has overcome your sin, your death for you. You're not enough, but he is. And that's why he came. He came because we didn't just need a God, we needed a Savior. And that's why we talked about the very beginning, the whole reason we even read the Gospels, and the reason the Gospels are called Gospels, good news, is because Jesus didn't just come as God, he came as Messiah, he came as Savior. He came to give us a way back to him. And because Jesus overcame, our lives are filled with an indelible hope. We know that no matter what happens in this life, nothing can now steal this world away from this righteous, this holy God that my wife and I found afresh again us through this study. God has come. He has overcome for us. And therefore, we look again to this next thing that Jesus has overcome. He's coming again. He's coming back. He didn't just go to heaven. He didn't just come from heaven, come to earth, save us so then we could have this little better Christian experience in this life. He gave us a commission. He says, I have been given authority on heaven and on earth, everywhere. And this is what I'm telling you to do. Make disciples. And this is how I'm telling you to do it. You go to people who don't know this yet. You help them come to faith. And when they come to faith, you help them grow in that faith with the promise that the Holy Spirit, that God is with us in the whole process, that he's empowering it, he is with us, but he's given us something to do. How foolish would it be for us as Christians to be those who have received this goodness of God to ignore his command in our life, to waste the blessings of heaven on squandered, um, simple living for today when we know that he's coming back, and he said, I've got work for you to do. Jesus even told his disciples on the road back to Jerusalem the last time, he says, don't be like foolish workers, foolish managers who the master gives a command to, and then he leaves, and then they waste their time. He says, it's not going to be good for them. He says, how blessed you will be if when I come back, I find you doing what I asked. And because of this, we have purpose in our life. There are good things that we do. We go to work, we make income, we, we we raise our kids, we right, we try to help engage in our communities. We all have these little tasks that take most of our days, and all of those things are fine. But there is nothing more important in your life, nothing more defining than this, that God has a purpose for you. He created you, crafted you, the Holy Spirit is in you, right, with you to the very end of the age for this reason to make disciples, to grow in knowledge of Him in your own life, and to help others do the same. This is why we're here. And know this, that someday all of this craziness that we look at and scratch our heads and say, Lord, why are you allowed the world to be this way? He's like, I let the world be this way because you hijacked it from me. Maybe to show you make lousy gods. But here's the thing. He's going to undo it. He's coming back. And we have a short period of time, every one of us, our life, the maximum, to make a difference in his kingdom, to do what he's asked. And know this, he's coming back. He's going to make all things right. We look forward to that. It gives us hope, doesn't it? gives us great hope. So live for his kingdom. That's what we do. So how do you going to apply that? On your connection card, I have some things that I'm going to challenge you to do. I know this is a surprise, but here's the thing. If we're not following Jesus, if we're not taking next steps, are we really following anybody? We're just standing there. And if we're going to follow him, we need to do something. Here are some next steps, some simple things that we can begin just one step at a time to grow after. And the first one, if you haven't yet, memorize Matthew 16, 24. Know this, if you're going to be Jesus' follower, you have to deny yourself. Stop living for the small things, right? There are times that your will and God's will are not going to be the same. So will you yield your will to his? Deny yourself. Will you take up your cross? Will you be willing to make a sacrifice in your life to actually live for his kingdom? To die to yourself so you can live the better eternal life. But also, are you willing to follow him? Follow him in this life and into the next. Are you willing to follow him not just to the difficult things, but also to life eternal? Follow him. Something else I challenge you to do is read a gospel. You have had all summer long, I put everything together, but the gospels were written for a reason, so that we would know the truth, the hope that we have. Take time this week. I encourage you, read one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, Some one of them that speaks to you. Go in there and read again, fresh, the very historical record of what happened when God came and lived amongst us. The next thing I want to ask us to do is a challenge is to live in the kingdom, by the kingdom and for the kingdom. Living in the kingdom means that you are a follower of Jesus. You you say to Jesus, he is my Lord and my Savior. And if you haven't done that, I want you to come talk with me after the service, and I will help you take those steps so you can be in the kingdom. Right? But we need to be in that. But if you're in the kingdom, you need to live by the kingdom. Right? This is not just uh, I'm living my life by my own power. This is God working in me. And because of the kingdom, is we're part of it. I, I'm living as part of not just the kingdom of Aaron but the kingdom of God. Live according to that. And, and how you do that best is being part of a great church. And if you haven't connected to our church family yet, I encourage you to do so because this is what we're doing. But I will say this, you need to also live for the kingdom. The priority in our life, we need to worship God as first and most because he is coming back. He didn't just save us, but he's coming back. And he encourages them to look in our life. What are the ways in my life that, that I'm actually centering my life on him? Build on that. And are there things in my life that are off skew that I'm not living for the kingdom? I'm living for smaller things. Use this as an opportunity to set things right and to be living for the kingdom of God. Something else I'm going to ask you to do, a way of doing that is we're making disciples by bringing the gospel to all people, right? Do you know who lives in Estes Park? Some of all the people. And you know some of them. And next week, we're having back National Back to Church Sunday. We're going to have a chili cook-off, and if you would like to challenge me on that, good luck, but I would encourage it, right? We're going to do that after our second service. There'll be different service times, right? We're, we're shifting our second service up uh, to 1030. We've created an invite card for you. It's in your bulletin. If You take this out. On there's a way you know somebody that needs a church, that needs a family, that needs the hope of God. And we're going to be talking about all of the benefits that we have in following Christ. That's what we'll be doing the next uh, six weeks a part of that. So take this and say, you know what? I'm going to invite a, I'm gonna invite a guest. You never know. Uh, maybe God is invited, calling you to go and to, to make a disciple this week. All right. Let me pray for you as you make those commitments. At the end of the message, please drop everything in the offering box at the back, uh, according with your offering and your connection cards and uh, then we'll have a time of commitment, a song of commitment, and we'll set you free to be God's missionaries in this community. Let's pray. Father God, you are powerful and wonderful beyond words, and yet you came. You are the word, and yet, uh, Lord, uh, you've given us a message that is so fantastic, a message that you not only exist, but that you love us. Not only love us, but you came to redeem us. You not only come to redeem us, but you did. You overcame, and that you're coming again. We celebrate you, Help us to live in your kingdom and by your kingdom and for your kingdom in all areas of our life so that we can bring you glory. As we wait for you to return, we'll be busy doing the work that you've called us to do so that, Father, we will see your goodness even here. Though I pray for all of the invitations we're going to be giving this next week, that you will draw many to hear the good news of Christ. Father, that you will build your kingdom in Estes Park in a fresh and a new and a powerful way even though this next month, Father. But first, this week, Father, build your kingdom in us deeper and more steadfast. We pray all of that in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior.